Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Hey, retailers and commerce enthusiasts. On the hunt for an e-commerce solution that can help you to sell more and scale faster? Look no further than Shopify. They are excited to exhibit at Omar 23. Visit them at booth A4E05 in the Premium Hall and chat with the friendly Shopify team. Take a break at the Shopify in-booth coffee bar and refresh yourself before seeing what Shopify has to offer. Learn about the Shopify omni-channel solutions and see a demo of their innovative platform and POS. Don't miss the chance to speak with their agency partners, eShop Guide and NetShake on how to enhance your customer experience. Whether you're a small business or an enterprise-level retailer, Shopify can help you to sell more and scale faster. Book a meeting with their sales team on-site to learn how Shopify can help you to grow your business. What are you waiting for? Come visit Shopify booth A4E05 in the Premium Hall at OMR and take the first step towards growing your business with Shopify. If you cannot make it to OMR, visit shopify.com plus to learn more. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today with me, I have John N. Gates. He is field CTO at Cloudflare, a nice company we know, uh, we obviously all know. And I already had like John Graham Cummings back then, maybe one and a half years ago um, in the podcast. It was like a quite a technical discussion. He told us quite a lot about, about the inner core of Cloudflare. And I am happy to have another perspective on that. Um, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe later on you can tell us a bit more what what the difference between a field CTO and a uh, and a CTO is. I'm I'm really curious. Uh, but but first of all, maybe you tell us a bit more about yourself, and then more about your personal nerd journey. Like, how did you get into computing? Um, are you actually, would you consider yourself a nerd? And then like, why did you become a nerd uh, and how? Um, of course. So. Yeah, I definitely am a nerd. Uh, I have been a nerd forever. And my nerd journey started way back in, I would say maybe uh, early teenage years, right? So maybe that would be middle school for Americans. And I don't know what you call it, seventh or eighth grade, somewhere in that range. Um, my father was always... Uh, interested in whatever new things, gadgets, uh, things. He was a camera guy. He was a, a Nikon camera guy, and he loved the, the, the newest gadget. And he wanted that same thing for me. And so when the computer sort of emerged, we got a computer pretty early on. Um, 
My very first computer was a Texas Instruments 99 computer. And then later, not too many years later, we got a, a PC clone, one of the very earliest 4.77 megahertz PC clones. And the very first thing I did was open the computer. My mother was horrified that I opened it up with a screwdriver and started to look at the, the boards and the cards. And, you know, that's my analytical side, my curiosity coming out. And computers sort of took hold there. And that, that, that uh, you know, kind of continued throughout my high school years into college. In college, I spent a lot of time in the computer lab. Um, it was the internet-connected computer lab, right, where you had terminals connected to a Unix machine. So I learned Unix, and I downloaded Linux in that computer lab onto uh, floppy disks, literally, you know, Slackware Linux on, you know, 25 floppy disks, took it home, put it on a 386 computer, connected that computer back to university so I could get internet access, you know, using a slip connection. And, uh, yeah, so it kept going, and it, we started an ISP right after college, uh, we needed internet access and it wasn't available. So, um, you know, been a curious internet nerd my whole life. And I can tell you more if you if you want to to to, hold, to know the whole career path. What what, what um, uh, when was the last time you you touched any 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 real code and 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 why? The most recent time I touched real code was actually testing ChatGPT to see if it could write code, and it was really very experimental, but I was writing Cloudflare worker code using ChatGPT. Um, I don't code for a living. I don't write code for, I really never have, honestly. I, I've programmed a little bit here and there. I've learned um, a number of, of languages over the years and then, uh, then forgot them very quickly because I don't, if you don't code, you forget them. Um, most of my career was very much focused on networks, data centers, servers, Uh, you know, WAN, LAN, all the things that you do to connect things together, right? So that's the path that I took versus the hard, hardcore coding path. Um, but, you know, you, they cross over at times. And But yeah, the most recent one was really uh, writing Cloudflare worker code um, and, and using ChatGPT to see how good it was. And it worked out, I guess? It works. It immediately wrote code that worked, um, which I was pretty shocked at. Like, it wasn't a very complicated thing. Um, I, you know, it, it was basically hitting a number of websites, iterating through a list, trying to see. I was looking basically at a big, long list of websites of companies that are Cloudflare customers and prospects. And I was trying to figure out which ones were actually behind Cloudflare and which ones were not. And the way you do that is you look at the website headers, you see if the Cloudflare is the server for that uh, that site and that tells you that it's behind cloudflare proxy and i wanted code to do that for me rather than having me to do that at, at the command line and so i had cloudflare worker write that script for me and it did it magically and uh you know uh, and it was mostly just me testing to see what was possible with jet chat dpt yeah we all had that exciting moment in the last <laughs> month i would say <laughs> every day every day yeah 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 absolutely it's the new junior developer in the team uh, that that writes more structured and or better structured code than uh, mo most people do right so kind of impressive but um so i i understand you're more like an infrastructure guy you also spend like lots of your or large parts of your career um at rackspace as cto um 
How did infrastructure evolve from your perspective since then? I mean, it, it must be like a huge difference uh, between between Cloudflare and, and, and Rackspace. Uh, how do you see that? Well, I think uh, in the early days of Rackspace, the infrastructure was um, pretty standard Linux servers that you'd build yourself, like literally um, that's where Rackspace was born, basically out of the uh, the need for having a Linux server online quickly, doing it cheaply for the hobbyist or the person that was building simple website. Um, the founders of the company were also ISP guys like me. They had basically come out, they were competitors of mine. I knew them well. And um, they just saw a need because co-location was the only way to get a server really online. If you wanted at the time infrastructure for the internet, you either needed to get your own pipe to the internet, you need to have a T1 or a T3 line, or you needed to colo my machine. And a colo could take weeks or, or months to get uh, space provision, get the server online. One of the other founders of Rackspace went through this headache of getting a server online. And he did it with my ISP. The ISP that I uh, you know, came from, he was one of my customers. And it took probably six weeks from start to finish, ordering a server, getting the right licenses, getting it online. Um, and they, he knew there was a better way. And so we figured out at, at Cloud or at Rackspace, I should say, um, that there was a better way. Getting machines online in 24 hours was better than six weeks. And so uh, that that was the the mechanism why, by which the company launched. And it evolved, you know, more and more bandwidth, bigger and bigger data centers, uh, better equipment. We went from you know homemade computers to uh, enterprise servers, and then the the cloud came into the picture. So 2010 timeframe, we started paying attention to what uh, AWS and others were doing. And we started to build our own cloud. And that's when we sort of went the other direction back toward commodity servers built, you know, sort of designed in-house. And no one cared what brand they were. No one cared what kind of gear it was. Uh, I have to say in the early days of Rackspace, when the big customers, they wanted to tour the data center. They wanted to come and see the facility. And I'd, I'd, I'd argue that today, no one goes to see the facility anymore. Nobody tours the data center because the cloud operators won't let you. There's just no way to do that, practically speaking. Um, Cloudflare is much more like a, a hyperscale cloud in the sense that all of our equipment is pretty much, um, you know, I would characterize it as commodity because it doesn't have an enterprise uh, component or brand name to it. It's uh, it's at scale. It is um, you know designed and deployed in a way that we don't need to touch it. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to you know manage it or maintain individual servers. We want to treat it like a uh, you know sort of sort of a out of sight, out of mind set of resources. And then we want to put all of our code across that set of resources. So it's very much like a hyperscale cloud. The one thing that I would say we do a little differently than those folks is that we position our equipment and our servers all over the world. We're not in a handful of large data centers. We're in lots and lots and lots of smaller facilities because we want to be very, very close to the end users. We're not um, in regions. Our region is Earth, basically one big region everywhere, all the services running at all the data centers. Um, that's been the model of Cloudflare for for years. It may may change. It may shift over time, uh, based on customer requirements. We'll we'll go where the customers need us. But ideally, we want to simplify things as much as possible. 
So from today's perspective, it must feel like 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 a crazy huge difference, right? Between back then and now. Is it now? Yeah, because because it's programmable now. The computing is programmable. The the data center, if you will, what used to be a physical uh, data center that you racked and stacked and cabled. And, you know, we, we used to put a firewall device at the top of the rack right under the switch. We used to put yeah. a load balancer right under the firewall. We used to wire things together. We needed redundancy at the power and the, the networking. You know, that was the way we built infrastructure. And today, uh, all the infrastructure is already there, so to speak, for the person that wants to build something. And so you immediately go to a API or a dashboard or some sort of, um, you know, code automation platform, and you just push the buttons, and now you've got your code deployed. And, and that is magical. It is a very different experience than the, the early days of Rackspace. And even, even the early days of cloud, it's very different because, you know, there's so much that's abstracted away and so much that au that's automated and and it will it will continue to go that direction if if you know if chat gpt goes the way we think it is will we even be coding or will we just be asking chat gpt to to push something into the cloud and i don't know how far that is away but that's uh, that's the abstractions that we keep seeing yeah let's see let's see um you sometimes feel that it's like too abstract well, I think it depends on who you are. Like, I mean, if you're a network engineer, you definitely want to uh, touch the network at times. You have to, right? I mean, the people that build out a Cloudflare data center or a hyperscale cloud data center, um, somebody has to see the data center. Somebody has to know how the plumbing works um, underneath. And, and so, yes, it's it has to be abstracted for the end customer because that's sort of what they're paying for. They're paying for the... Uh, the ability to get something deployed very quickly without having to go through all of the hassle of building it themselves and managing it themselves. So I think it depends on who you are and, and what your goal is, right? And so you should have entry points to be able to do what you need to do um, depending on what you're trying to solve for. So if you need bare metal hardware, it's probably going to be available forever. But if you only need some sort of uh, cloud-based service, that you never touch hardware, you don't even know hardware is there. That's also available. And, and I think that is going to continue to um, uh, expand in terms of the options that customers have. Um, recently, I saw a lot, many debates around um, cloud being too expensive um, for what it actually delivers, uh, the, the value it delivers. Um, for example, David Heinemeyer-Henson, one of the founders of Basecamp, uh, tends to bring up this this debate a lot you, you think that it's that it's true or you, you you think it's more like people lose track of the total cost of ownership if they question the value of aws uh, or the, the if the price is justified you picked an interesting example you you picked Uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, 37 Signals is the company and uh, Basecamp is the product. But 37 Signals used to be on Rackspace years ago. That was one of our massive customers. By their standards back then, they were big. And they were on dedicated hardware. And uh, over time, you know, when cloud came into the picture, they, uh, like a lot of people, embraced the idea of cloud because it was something that it was programmable and you could build things very quickly. Um, but you do pay a cost for that. You pay a cost for 
somebody else to manage it. So uh, there is there was a cost for Rackspace managing it at, at one point. There's a cost for Amazon managing it. Um, it's you know sort of a, a an overhead, if you will, and you're gaining the flexibility to add and remove capacity on demand. You're gaining access to an ecosystem of services that are available. You're gaining, um, you know, optionality to where you can, you know, go from having all your hardware to no hardware if you, if you want. Um, you know, some companies pay uh, pay in advance for services so they can lower the cost. Um, and, and in that case, they're trading sort of some of that flexibility for some certainty on the part of the cloud provider that you're going to stick with them. But when you shift from a cloud back to a colo, like these folks did at Basecamp, um, they are betting that they know how their application is going to perform and they know the steady state nature of that. Um, I think that's fine for them. I think it depends on the company and it depends on the application. Some organizations want to enable very fast rapid uh, development and prototyping and the ability for developers to have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. In some cases, it would be difficult to even uh, convince developers to build on a platform other than a cloud, right? I mean, if you told a developer, okay, you're going to have to stop building using all these tools that you come to know and come to love and come to love and hate, you know, it's a love-hate relationship, certainly. But but I think... um, you know, there aren't. They might, there might be some people who say, "Well, look, that's that's going to be career limiting for me if I'm not actively using these cloud services. Um, if I was to leave one day, then I'm not going to have those skills, right?" And so, it's it's also one of these, uh, uh, you know, sort of cycles, the virtuous or vicious, whatever it is. Once you're in it, where it's hard to break out because you you've got engineers that are going to want to work on that kind of uh, platform or for fear of losing their skills. Whereas the company themselves, uh, you know, they want to save money. They want to go buy the hardware from Dell. They want to go deploy it into the Colo. They know that they don't need that burst capacity. They, they have a pretty good idea of what their steady state is, and they probably can save money on that. But it depends on the, a lot of factors. So at the scale that, that uh, 37 Signals is at, it might make sense because they know their application well for others like less less mature companies um it it might not make sense right well i certainly think that if you're an early stage company building something new you should always be on the cloud at this point yeah. because you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work you don't know if you're going to have to pivot and change direction you don't know what services you might need as the as the uh, the business ramps up um if you're a very mature company you might want to maybe have two approaches where you use certain cloud, uh, use certain um, platforms for certain types of applications. And, and as, as you find that you can sort those into multiple buckets, you might say, well, these applications are very steady state. We could run those in a data center. I went to an enterprise uh, company just the other day, visited, I won't tell you who they are, but I visited them and they continue to have an on-premises data center and certain applications have no um, you know, no chance of leaving that data center anytime soon because they don't have any reason to move them to cloud. They'll just pay more for them. But yet they are embracing cloud for certain digital transformation. I put that in quotes because that means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but they want to be agile and they want to take advantage of some new capabilities that are on the on the horizon. And they know that cloud is probably the easiest and best ways to do that. And it gives their engineers um, you know, sort of access to the 
to the latest, newest tools. Um, what do you think about multi-cloud? Is, is that like a myth or is that real? No, I think it's real. Um, I think of as soon as you get to a certain scale, you're going to have applications that are in multiple places. Um, your email is probably not in the same place as your your web application or your you know API. Sure, but I mean, who needs let's say Google Cloud and AWS at the same time? I mean, yes, they have like different tools um, and and a bit of a different focus, but honestly, like. Sometimes, like even if I see like those those management layers that you could introduce potentially to to somehow unify it for your organization, right. it's just so tremendously complex that I ask myself like, is it really like are we are we over engineering stuff here, or is yeah. this really true? Yeah, I, I think it's probably not the case that people would have one application spanning multiple clouds. I think they would find that they will have different applications in different clouds. And sometimes that happens by accident. For example, if you're a big company, you make acquisitions, you acquire a company, they're already on Google Cloud, you know, good luck trying to convince them to move yeah. to AWS. Yeah, or, sure. you know, it, it's, it happens. It's just, go it's going to happen. Uh, or maybe you hire an agency and the agency builds on AWS and you're on Google. And so okay, you're going, but, but I don't like need the to have legacy cases, right? More like the yeah. legacy cases where, I don't know, you're maybe, I don't know, Shell, and you have a global organization, uh, and someone had the idea that Google Cloud is good for you, and another one had the idea that AWS is good for you, and then you, you, you yeah. all of a sudden have 10 different clouds, so yeah. Well, I would try that. hard not to do that. I would try hard yeah, not yeah. to yeah, allow yeah. the company to go in 10 different directions, but... Shell is also a multinational. It's in a lot of parts of the world. It's got Absolutely. a guy in the U.S. who likes AWS, and he's the group CIO, and he's going to go AWS. And you, you know, are you going to fight with him, uh, yeah. you know, over that decision? And so, therefore, it happens. It just it, it's a natural course. And then again, you know, you've got SaaS applications, you've got APIs, you've got all these different things that uh, you know the portfolio is just massive. So I I would say almost no big company is not multi-cloud in some former fashion. Okay. Um, what are the craziest things you saw at Cloudflare? I, I can imagine there, there are many crazy things happening. Maybe some you can tell us about and uh, like a lot you rather don't tell us about. Like the, the craziest things you can you can tell us about. What, 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 what were they? Yeah. Well, like, like I've been at the company for about a year and a half, as we, we've maybe mentioned. And, and in that time, I've seen a couple things that were for me, uh, interesting. I don't know if they're crazy, but they're interesting. So, uh, you know, Cloudflare sees roughly 20% of the, the web's traffic. So we analyze that traffic. We collect statistics on it. Um, every day we are constantly um, bombarded with attack traffic, uh, targeting our customers, obviously, sometimes targeting Cloudflare, but mostly targeting our customers. And recently, uh, you know, we, we saw the largest DDoS attack in history. This podcast is proudly presented by Doit. Doit is a multi-cloud reselling partner to AWS, GCP and Azure, providing zero-cost consulting, support and technology portfolio on all things cloud. With Doit, you get unlimited 24-7 access to 200 plus engineers to quickly grow your expertise of cloud optimization and services. 
They can, for example, help you with app modernization, cost optimization, migration, and all things data and AI related. Duet's technology portfolio includes a console to take control and manage cloud costs with AI and machine learning features to spot cost anomalies or remove the risk, forecasting and tedious work required for managing a portfolio of compute commitments and reservations. Duet's product FlexSafe does so by continuously monitoring your cloud usage to identify compute instances not covered by existing commitments and then applies one-year discount rates on applicable workloads. Duet is also having strategic partnerships with ISVs, enabling customers to benefit from private pricing agreements. I personally work with Duet in many projects and I can say they are very professional. They have a great team of experts in cloud technologies and they do help to reduce cloud costs. Check out doit.com, which is D-O-I-T.com, and enter your monthly spend to see how much other companies like yours have saved. So this was just a few weeks ago. Uh, I believe it was the same weekend as the Super Bowl in the United States. Uh, record-breaking largest DDoS attack, 71 million requests per second. Um, 30,000 bot uh, strong DDoS attack, layer seven DDoS, HTTPS. So basically targeting uh, the application layer, very complicated to pull off a DDoS like that. You have to have a very large network. Uh, and and uh, in this case, what they're starting to do is not just take advantage of you know, IoT devices or home computers or things like that. They're using VPSs and clouds and uh, cloud infrastructure. So they're getting sophisticated. That's pretty crazy to me because I never, you know, I, I was not a DDoS guy previous to Cloudflare, but now I am starting to see sort of the scale of some of this. And it even, you know, sort of impresses me how big some of this is. The other thing that uh, for me was pretty eye-opening was just how Cloudflare operates sort of on the inside. Like I had always known the company outside, you know, looking at the blog or looking at some of the things that they publish, but um, just how, uh, I guess, serious the, the employees of the company take things. Like, for example, when we, when we uh, encountered the Log4j bug last year, that was right after I joined the company. I was on the Google internal chat room uh, at Cloudflare. With a, I would call it the war room because when that, whenever an incident happens at Cloudflare, immediately certain things happen automatically when we declare an incident. Uh, a channel is opened up automatically. It gets a whole bunch of the context of what's going on uh, populated. Certain people get invited or paged automatically. And then I, I was up uh, looking at the, the chats and saw the CEO and my boss, the CTO and the head of innovation and all these people discussing in the middle of the night how we were going to respond to this new newly uh, discovered bug, the Log4j bug. And it was just impressive to me to see the intensity um, of the people uh, behind the scenes, they were talking about how we were going to share and publish information. I think we put out a, a number of uh, maybe five blog posts over the course of the next you know, 24 hours. Uh, our IT organization, our security organization, our engineering teams, all of those people executed that in a way that was just super impressive to even to a guy who's been in the industry a long time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, I don't know if it's crazy, but it was impressive. So those are a couple of things that come to mind when you ask that question. Um, you know, I don't see, uh, you, know, you know, there's not something to physically go look at at Cloudflare. I mean, you know, the, there are all these data centers around the world. And so I don't ever really get to go see one of those. 
Um, and our customers are all over the world as well. I, I do sort of miss the days when you could go look through a, you know, through a, uh, a glass window and see all the servers, but, but there's not much to see that's crazy. It's mostly what you hear about and the, the kinds of things that, uh, that we're encountering on the web. Lot. Um, then I have a follow-up question. What happened at Cloudflare when Russia declared the war? Well, that's an interesting question too. So um, Cloudflare was already in contact with people, various people from, uh, from Ukraine, from the U.S. government helping Ukraine, preparing for certain uh, potential activities. So they uh, had reached out to Cloudflare for, for help in a number of different dimensions. I don't want to go down the path of each and every one of them, but again, it's mostly in protecting infrastructure, protecting critical infrastructure that's connected to the internet. So you can think about banking, you can think about um, uh, media sites, you can think about any kind of uh, government services that are necessary to keep the citizens, um, you know, sort of keep the, the country functioning, basically. I mean, people now rely very heavily on their smartphone. They rely on websites. They, they rely on a lot of things that are digital nowadays to keep society working. And panic sets in when that stuff starts to fall apart. You, we all know when there are major outages here in the U.S., even on social media sites, people start to fall apart and panic. You know, when Canada had a big outage on their cell network, people start to panic a little bit. And, uh, and you don't want that in the, in the face of a conflict like the Ukraine-Russia war. And so Ukraine was sort of pre preparing for it. And as the, the conflict sort of went from potential to real, um, and the attacks started to happen where, uh, you know, hacktivists, Russian or otherwise, were starting to attack and target infrastructure in Ukraine and even beyond Ukraine in the West. Cloudflare uh, intensify, intensified its response, and we, uh, we became very serious about, uh, you know, getting in touch with people that needed the help and being available and, you know, sort of pr taking what we do best, which is, uh, responding in these panic situations when people are under attack and just uh, making that available to people in, in, in the line of fire, so to speak, of, of the attacks that were coming uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, we started to also share a lot of information with the people that were worried about this. So, we, you know, people in the West are like, well, what happens if this thing spills over? Like, what if people start to attack Western targets in response for, for helping Ukraine, right? And so there was a lot of uh, fear and uncertainty. It didn't play out as big as people feared, but uh, during the early days, we were giving regular briefings to a variety of folks across the world around what we were seeing in terms of traffic. You can go to the Cloudflare blog today and go back and look at all the information that we were sharing around patterns of attack and, and cities that were seeing traffic uh, outages or or, or drop-offs and and what we thought that meant. You know, we, we could see Starlink coming online, you know, in the region and starting to see the traffic of Starlink, uh, you know, being utilized in the region. Um, Cloudflare has infrastructure right in, in Ukraine and in Russia and in the countries surrounding Ukraine and Russia. And so we see traffic, uh, you know, traffic patterns that go up and down. And when we see a drop, we can detect that. And, um, you know, it, it's something that uh, is fascinating, um, but it, it is, it's an interesting place to be when you're helping keep people online and, and keep a, 
economy and a, and a population functioning. But uh, it's also an important question internally how you position in such cases, right? As like someone who owns all the infrastructure and you said you have servers in Russia, you have servers in the Ukraine. Like, was it was it crystal clear or were you more like neutral like Switzerland? Well, you you try to navigate that. It's it's something that um, it's not my decision to make. It's certainly, the, you know, our uh, CEO and policy team, they you know talk about this on a regular basis. Our goal overall, though, is we want to make sure that the Internet is available to it, you know, to the people. Right. It's it was not uh, so much a decision around um Business or revenue, so to speak, we don't we didn't care about that. It's small, and and um, our goal is not to, you know, uh, keep the the revenue flowing. Our goal is to keep the internet flowing, and again, you want to do that because citizens rely on the internet so heavily nowadays. People, uh, you know, imagine you having no internet access right now. What what would happen? Your you know your podcast that we're doing right now would be offline. You couldn't uh, book a reservation. You couldn't watch TV anymore. Most of us, you know, can't can't even turn on the lights anymore without the internet, right? It starts to break down. And so imagine people in Russia or anywhere being cut off from the stream of real, reliable news or updates or connections across social media or feeling like the only outlet they have is the government you know, um, the, the official one. And that's what ends up happening when the, when the internet gets cut off, when people get cut off from the rest of the world, um, you know, they're at the, the whim of the government. And, and, and that is something Cloudflare tracks. We see government forced shutdowns. We can see this happen. Interesting. Here, here's another one of those things that you asked about crazy things. I mean, they shut down the internet in certain countries when kids are taking their exams. They, sh they literally shut down the internet. They shut down the mobile internet when they're taking exams because they don't want, I don't know, whatever cheating or, or whatever it is in certain countries. I don't know which one, one of the ones in maybe middle East or in, in uh, Asia somewhere. Um, I, you'd have to go back to the blog and look, but I, I was shocked at that. That even is a, is a thing, right? How t turning off the entire internet, uh, while, while the students take exams, um, you know, just, Very interesting. Elections, it happens all the time. It seems like where an election is happening and the internet just magically goes offline for a whole country or a whole region. And so this is something that uh, we're trying to, again, protect the internet, make it open, make it available. We're not going to break laws to do it, um, but we're going to do everything in our power uh, legally to make sure that we can provide a reliable internet service to as many people as possible. I, I actually remember that there was like a LinkedIn discussion um, happening when when the war started that like someone demanded from all the the infrastructure provide providers to switch off the Russian IP space. I, I think I, I actually uh, put a comment in there and marked uh, John Graham Cummings there. I think he never reacted. <laughs> so, yeah. well, the, um, the challenge with that is in, who's who is behind the campaign to do that? Is it is it necessarily a legitimate campaign or is it a disinformation or a misinformation campaign or is it meant to drive a wedge between you you never know really what the root cause or the root uh, uh, reason behind some of these things that sort of break out online nowadays is and so I think it's best for a company to have uh, as much of a policy in place as they can before something like that happens and 
you know, make sure that they're using logic and not, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, emotion. And, you know, this is, it's, it's hard, right. It's hard to navigate. And, and I don't claim to be an expert on any of that. That's, that is beyond my ability to, uh, you know, to, to, to decide or, uh, navigate, but it is something that I respect in terms of being able to, uh, you know, again, I, I'm an internet guy. I think everybody ought to have access to the internet and, and it shouldn't be something that we just turn off on a whim. So uh, thanks a lot for like navigating so well through those <laughs> like really edgy questions. Um, I can imagine that it's not so easy. And I, I actually wanted to ask you like, what, what the difference is between a field CTO and, and a CTO? And I, I think you already answered it. Like you're more on stages, right? You, you're more engaged. Yeah. Uh, is well, that this true? is a good topic. This is a good topic. So CTO, what I, what I would say to people, this is a CTO audience or potentially a CTO audience. I would say CTO is different at every company. I've been at multiple companies. I've been a CTO at multiple companies. Um, and it depends on the company, the size, the stage of the company, who their customers are. Uh, sometimes, you know, like for example, in my early days at Cloudflare, or at Rackspace, I should say, in the early days, I was very hands-on the keyboard in the data center, working with customers. In the latter half of my career there, I was much more uh, traveling and engaging with customers externally and doing speeches and explaining what cloud was. I was on stages with, you know, Werner Vogels of, of Amazon having panel debates about what the cloud was going to be. And I traveled all over the world. Uh, doing that and uh, talking to investors as well. So that's another role for a CTO is explaining your product to the investors, right? The people that are funding your company or uh, investing in your company. Um, so my role sort of throughout my career shifted from an internal technical hands-on kind of a CTO to more of a uh, relationship building, trust building, uh, external focused CTO role. And here at Cloudflow, that's really all it is. Um, I do, I do tinker with pushing, you know, certain technology. Uh, I guess my own opinions on people inside the company, you know, especially around AI and things of that sort. I've already sent some emails to various people, you know, sort of prompting prompting our employees to to do things that I think we ought to be working on, and it worked. We're already, you know, exploring some of that, but. But what I, I feel like my superpower is, is connecting with a CIO or a CISO or a head of innovation or a technologist at a company and giving them the full picture of what Cloudflare is capable of, what technology can do, where things are going, and what, what I'm excited about. Like, what is it that I see coming that is um, that they should be paying attention to, too? And, you're like, and how do I build that uh, energy and, and that uh, excitement in, in another in another company. So you essentially went through the like a, a career from more of a like a very operative CTO. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, putting yeah. servers into racks at Rackspace to now, let's say, no, don't mean it badly, like a more salesy CTO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what are you like from your perspective to also get them some some uh, takeaway values for for our audience? Um, do you have a few tips for CTOs on how to improve their communication skills in total? Well, sure. I, I think, yes, I would agree with your characterization. It is a salesy role. I mean, I, I work with our marketing team. I work with our communications team. I work with our, uh, you know, uh, product marketing 
I, you know, literally sit side by side with salespeople. So that job is communications, right? So I would say to anybody um, that wants to advance their career, the number one thing that you can do is learn to be a really good communicator. I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be um, some great, you know, orator or, you know, professional in terms of communications, but I'm willing to do the communications, which is sometimes something that a lot of folks in, in the technical space are unwilling to do. Sometimes they want to be behind the keyboard. Um, they are oftentimes introverts. I am an introvert. I have to pretend really hard to be somebody that's uh, an extrovert. It takes a lot of energy to do it, but it has paid dividends in terms of my career because, um, you know, whenever the CEO of, of Rackspace or, or wherever I happen to be, uh, nowadays it's Cloudflare, whenever they say, can you go do this? I say, yep, I'll go do it. I raise my hand. I get on an airplane. I, I always joke that CTO really stands for chief travel officer and chief talking officer because if you're not doing those things from time to time, you're sort of limiting the scope of what, what's possible for you and your company. And in a technical role, you should be getting that information in, this, in, in front of as many people as possible. You should be convincing them that your product is better than the other, the other guys. I mean, you know, this is, um, you know, it's a fight when you're building a product to get it in front of customers so that they'll buy it. And you need to help your salespeople. They're not uh, they're not able to tell that story as good as the CTO of the company. So get out there and help them tell that story, build some presentation skills. Um, you know, that's not that hard to do uh, or get some help with it. The other thing I would say to everybody is figure out what your own strengths are and then surround yourself with people that can fill in the gaps. You don't have to be good at everything. You don't have to be constantly trying to, you know, uh, be a better writer or be a better uh presentation builder or whatever, you can find somebody on the team that will help you with that. I promise you there are people that will, uh, you know, help you build graphics and design slides and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they want you to go tell the story. And so uh, I, I think just volunteer yourself to go do that. Um, what, what are the top three things? I mean, you're, you're like, you have a bird's eye perspective. So uh, what are the top three things that CTOs do wrong from, from, from your point of view? Well, I, I, again, I, told, I think it's different at every company. Um, I think limiting yourself to just being the head of engineering is probably a mistake. You know, try to figure out what else you can do in the company. I mean, CTO is a role that is, is sort of like a Swiss army knife. It can be anything that it needs to be at any time. No one defines the role. No one says what it must be. Oftentimes the CTO or the CEO looks at the CTO and says, what, you know, what should you be doing? And you're, it's up to you, right? You, you can define the role, right? Define the role that the company needs uh, and adapt that role. Don't be stuck in a rut. Be willing to adapt. You know, one of the, the things I feel like is a strength of mine is my adaptability, uh, you know, and, and willingness to just sort of pivot and do whatever needs doing right now. You can be uh, you know, writing code one day and the next day uh, building an investor deck with the CEO and the next day, um, you know, going to see a customer to sell a big deal. And that's all good. That's what CTOs do. Don't let anybody tell you that that's not the role of a CTO because I've seen it in dozens of companies around the world. Um, build relationships as well. So don't be sitting around, you know, sort of in a 
in a room kind of looking out and hoping that something happens. You've got to go out and make it happen, right? And uh, building relationships, uh, conferences. I know that we know we have social media nowadays. There's so much more connectivity, but it used to be a little harder. You had to actually go uh, meet people and, and network. But now networking comes in different ways. But don't don't be shy about um, asking for help on something from a CTO at another company. They are more than willing, usually, to um, even competitors. Crazy enough as it sounds, you know, there are times when if you're having a really, really rough time and a competitor sees it, they will reach out and say, is there anything we can do to help, right? And so be that guy, right? Be the guy or girl that is willing to reach out to someone who is is having a rough time for some reason and say, what, is there anything I can do to help? Because um, that will pay dividends to you in the long run. It will be something that that will come back to you. Uh, and don't burn bridges either. Don't, don't ever, uh, you know, make an enemy out of somebody, make friends out of people as many of, as, as you can, because they are the stepping stone to your career. Thanks a lot. Um, so as kind of my, my, my last question, um, I, I still have a little surprise for you. Um, actually John Graham Cummings told me after, after the podcast about a little backdoor that he personally hacked into the guts of your Nginx fork you're using uh, to, to operate Cloudflare uh, on. Um, and, and it's a little time machine feature which lets you send um, an HTTP header time machine um, plus a year to a Cloudflare server. And what it does, it actually lets us travel back in time to the year we actually sent there. So I now send it the year 2002 when you just started as CTO at Rackspace. And we now have the chance to observe you for a while. You were like moving servers into racks and stuff. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young, young John's ears. What would it be? Oh, that is a great question. Uh, well, look, I think there's all kinds of things that I would love to whisper, like, you know, what stock to invest in and what company to join and what, uh, you know, technology to bet on. There are so many cases where I kick myself for not doing something like that, you know, uh, NVIDIA or something, you know, like that. Cool. Cloudflare, invest in Cloudflare before the IPO, all those kind of things. But look, I think ultimately I would say uh, to my younger self is, uh, in terms of using that word invest, I mean, investing in, uh, you know, your your friends, your family, uh, your knowledge, uh, making sure you're, you know, sort of doing the things that will make you a better person rather than, I mean, I'm getting kind of older now and I look back and I think, well, I could have done this differently or I could have done that differently. Um, I would also whisper to myself to to just do it, do it, whatever it is, you know, don't wait, do it now. Opportunities, they come and they go. I would say to anybody that's young, take the time to explore, uh, you know, these opportunities that you think are exciting. Maybe, maybe your parents think you're crazy for doing it, or maybe your uh, spouse thinks you're, you're nuts, but it's sometimes the, the best thing that ever happens to you, right? And you can't know that unless you go try it. And so if you want to start a business, go start a business. If you want to uh, take a trip around the world, go do that. Um, and, and, and spend time with your, uh, your friends and your family, travel with your husband and your wife, make sure you're taking 
and making good use of your time because that's another thing we can never get back is the time. So do it now. Uh, invest in yourself. Uh, take care of your health. That's another one that I would encourage everybody. Don't don't burn yourself out and ruin your your health because that is the only thing you have if if you're not taking care of yourself. Um, and and those are sort of I know they're they sound pretty uh, normal, but but those are the things I'd probably say to myself. Plus, invest in Bitcoin at one dollar. Stupid, Bitcoin, right? For sure, yes, <laughs> definitely Bitcoin. Yeah, but mine your own Bitcoins. I, I uh, have a there's a uh, my daughter's school. There's a kid that was like a junior in high school mining Bitcoins, and he was doing it for a long enough period that I don't think he ever has to work again. And he was you know, like you know a 16 year old kid, and I'm not gonna you know claim that he had that he knew that ahead of time but uh you know it's pretty crazy that 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 happened and and i would definitely whisper my, you know buy some bitcoins or in, mine some bitcoins or whatever okay thanks a lot john it was a really nice discussion with you um hope to have you again at a certain point um enjoy your time in germany and um yeah thanks yeah a lot. i've loved the love the conversation today thanks for having me and i appreciate the time have a great day bye bye Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.